want to uh, have you turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 tonight, um, which can be found on page 857 in the black Bibles that you see nearby. Um, we're continuing the series that Tim started last week, so I want to thank Tim for preaching for us. He started us off by looking at the hope that we have in Jesus that we learned about from Romans chapter 5. We're going to kind of hang out in Luke for a while now. The plan is to look at the Christmas stories in Luke, the birth narratives of Jesus and Luke over the next few weeks, and then also to continue on in Luke, looking at some snapshots of Jesus uh, into the new year. So we'll be in Luke for a little while, and the next few weeks we're going to be focusing on these themes you see on the wall behind us. So today we're looking at the theme of, of love from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, so there's this big idea in the New Testament that we see the, the revelation of God's love for us in Jesus, in the birth, in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. That proves to us and reveals to us that God loves us. So with that as kind of our logic as our starting point, what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, let's look at the birth of Jesus and then understand how this is a picture of God's love for us. So that's just kind of the simple thing we're going to try to do tonight as we look at the birth narrative of Jesus from Luke 2. 1 through 7. Uh, John 3.16 is a, a verse a lot of you are probably familiar with. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so we're just starting with that as an assumption from the beginning. God loved us so much, he sent us Jesus. So when we look at the story, even down to the nitty-gritty of how he sent Jesus into the world the first time, we're going to get little glimpses of God's love for us. So read with me Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let me pray and we'll ask God to help us learn his word tonight. God, we pray that you would teach us. We thank you for your word. Uh, we also ask you for your help because you know we, uh, we have doubts. Um, we have distractions. Uh, we want to go our own way and do our own thing. And so we pray that you would meet us here, that your spirit would help us to hear from you, to learn from you that you'd give us hope, that you would help us to see a true picture of your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an illustration uh, one of my former pastors shared many years ago, about 20 years ago, probably more than 20 years now. I guess I was at uh, Texas A&M. You're supposed to respond. Whoop, thank you. All right. Um, there's only a few Aggies here tonight. Oh, no, I can't believe it. Um, you're supposed to whoop if you're an Aggie when, when you hear Aggies discussed or Texas A&M talked about. Um, so I was at Texas A&M, and I was going to Grace Bible Church, same name, in College Station, down there in Aggieland. And uh, my pastor there, Brian Fisher, a uh, great guy, and I remember him just sharing this one particular illustration where he was just talking about a father's love for his children. And he said just one of the things he remembered from his childhood that stuck with him was that his dad, whenever he would cut slices of watermelon, would always find the best slices of watermelon and give those to the kids. And he'd take whatever was left. And whenever he'd make steaks, he would give them the best steak, the biggest steak, the juiciest steak. He'd give his kids his best. Um, and that stuck with me as just a little tangible expression of a father's love for his children. I think sometimes it stuck with me because I just love to eat too. But 
the illustration stuck with me as a picture of God's love for his children because God also, like a good father, gives us his best. And that's what the New Testament teaches us about God the Father giving us Jesus. He sent us Jesus because he loves us. It's a demonstration of his love. And so again, as we look at the scriptures, as we look at God's love for us, we're going to learn things even in the little funny details of the birth story. And I just want to kind of take us back and look at it with fresh eyes, because if you've grown up in the Christian West, as most of us have, even if you didn't grow up as a Christian, you're probably somewhat familiar with the birth story of Jesus. And it's easy to lose the sense of awe and and wonder that this is just a, a crazy story, that the God of the universe was born as a man. He took on flesh and was born in this very humble, humble way. So hopefully we can see this with fresh eyes. And the first thing that that I noticed as we moved through the story as I was studying it was that, oh, my clicker's off. There we go. That God's love is sovereign over history. Can you click forward to me? Is there anybody up there? There's nobody up there. In just a minute, you'll see. God's love is sovereign over history. Just to explain that word sovereign. Sovereign means uh, his kingship. He rules. God rules over history. So God's love is sovereign over history. And We see that in the first few verses as it talks about um, the person that everybody in history at that time saw as sovereign, right? So look at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Caesar, Augustus Caesar, was the emperor of the world. Do you know what other titles he had at that time besides Caesar, besides emperor? Well, he was called also Lord and Savior. That was what he called himself. That's what his followers called him, Lord and Savior. So there's a literary uh, juxtaposition, you might say, or irony here being set up where Luke is saying, hey, here's the decree of the great Savior, Lord, Emperor, Ruler, Caesar of the world. And his decree, coincidentally, with quotes, leads to Jesus being in the right place at the right time for his birth in Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting? And just to be careful here with words, the word coincidence means two things coinciding, two things happening side by side. And so when I say that God's love for us is sovereign over history, what I mean is that a pagan emperor that thinks he's God can decree something, and God can supersede that, can use that in spite of that man's evil intentions, and God is still accomplishing his unstoppable love for us. And so a lot of times we feel like, man, things are out of control, right? Rulers are doing bad things or uh, the system is broken or whatever it is that we're frustrated about. Genuine things that are really wrong, that really frustrate us, we need to be reminded that God is sovereign over history. God can work in spite of those broken things that we experience or that we see somewhere else. So Caesar Augustus makes this decree that all the world should be registered. When it says all the world, it means his world, right, the Roman Empire. Verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. There's some historical details that Luke gives us here, talking about Quirinius, talking about Caesar Augustus. What's interesting is when you look at the Gospels and you look at the New Testament, Luke, as an author, is like the historian's historian. He's the most historical in his bent in the way he writes the New Testament. So as believers who believe the New Testament is true, we would say, well, it's all historically accurate, um, but some was written in a more historical style, right, in a more careful kind of detailed style. And Luke is in that most 
detailed, historically driven style. He's the one that um, does more use of particular terms of certain areas when you read Luke in the book of Acts that he also wrote, whereas other gospel writers would translate more. You know, like when I try to preach a sermon to you, I try to use common language as much as possible. I try to give you illustrations that connect in a modern way, and other gospel writers would do that when they would write the New Testament. They would recall the stories of Jesus, and they would sometimes tell the stories in slightly different ways because they would be translating it into a context that people could understand. Um, Luke is a little more precise. He's a little more scientific, a little more historical in the way he tells the story, which is interesting because then that sets up a, a difficulty we have. A lot of skeptics read this story and say, well, hey, we, we don't think that actually happened. We don't think Caesar made this decree, and we don't think Quirinius was a governor at this time. And so they kind of push back a little bit on the history because there's some other things we know from history and then some missing pieces we don't have from history. Skeptics say, hey, I don't, I don't think this story is true. What I'd like to encourage you with is that there's a lot of things that when you study with a skeptical eye will give you a good excuse to back away from the scriptures and say, oh, it doesn't prove itself, so I don't trust it, and just walk away and don't read it anymore. I want to encourage you that that's profoundly lazy. Profoundly lazy. Because if you work hard and you actually study, you'll find many of your questions answered. Now, I, I don't promise you'll find all your questions answered, right? Sometimes we study stuff and we just go, and I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I don't get it. I don't, this, does, this seems like a conflict. And so if you, if you trust the scriptures like I do, I've studied so many times where it looked like a conflict, and then I was able to find ways that, oh, that, that actually makes sense. Or we've studied in archaeology where there's things that just seemed untrue from the scriptures, but the new archaeological discoveries tell us, no, it's true. That is the way it happened, or that is where that city was located, or is that... That is the name of the ruler they, they had in that area. Um, so we find these things again and again that, that kind of back up what Scripture says. But we just need to be careful. I, I would set it up this way. There's two extremes. One extreme is that you're such a skeptic, you're just never going to believe anything the Scripture says, right? It doesn't matter. You just want to be a skeptic. The other extreme is we're such fundamentalists, we're afraid to ask questions. I say we need to be careful of that extreme as well. The, the scripture can handle our testing. It can handle our questions. It's okay to have doubt. Um, I, I have these questions all the time when I study the scriptures. I just want to encourage you as someone who studies quite a bit, I find these questions answered. I find good answers and I'm encouraged. Sometimes eh, I, don't, I don't find a good answer, but many times I find great answers that encourage me that it's true and that that enables me more and more to be encouraged in my own faith and just say, okay, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. When we come to a point where we're not sure or we don't understand what it's saying, um, another way I would explain it this, uh, some people would say, well, we don't have another historical document that backs up this little decree of Caesar. I would say this is a historical document. Like we have one right here. We call it the Book of Luke. It is a historical document, right? We have more copies of it than any other historical document in the history of the world. It's more uh, backed up and more attested to than any other historical documents we have. So we, we need to count this as a historical document. So, so we need to balance our skepticism. Another, just one more thing about skepticism, then I'll move on. This is kind of a hobby horse of mine because I'm a recovering skeptic myself. Um, so one more thing I would say about skepticism. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, um, be careful of seeing through things. Because the purpose of seeing through things as a skeptic is to see the truth. That's the whole point of being a skeptic that can see through things, Right? It's like we've all grown up, we've all been lied to, and so there's a healthy skepticism that says, that's a sham, 
I'm going to see through that and I'm going to see the truth. Right? That's healthy skepticism. But be careful of falling into the spirit of the age, which is an addiction to skepticism, where you just can't stop. And you can't see anything anymore at all because you're always seeing through everything. If you see through everything all the time, you're blind. And you never see the truth at all. So I would just say be careful. Be careful. So we've got historical documents. We've got historical claims that Luke makes. In chapter 1, he says, Hey, Theophilus, I've made an orderly account. I've checked with eyewitnesses. Here are the stories of what happened with Jesus. So Luke claims that this is history, that this really happened in real life. And what I'm saying is that God uses real history. And he breaks into real history and he uses what Caesar Augustus was doing to move the family of Jesus to just the right time and just the right place. So God's love supersedes over the details of history, using even a pagan evil king like Augustus, who thought he was God, who claimed to be the savior of the world himself. Um, So I'd say a takeaway for us is trusting that God loves us even when the details of history don't seem to be going our way. Does that make sense? So do you ever watch the news or see things that are happening in the world and feel discouraged, like the world's out of control? What is going on here? I can't believe this, right? And I would say in those moments, we have to trust that that God's love for us is sovereign over history, that God works throughout things going very badly and things going very well. He works through good leaders. He works through bad leaders, and his love supersedes the the good and the bad. It, It can't be stopped by bad rulers. I think this is confusing for us as Americans because we have such a vested interest in our rulers, and rightly so. We're we're almost like we share rule in a sense, being a democracy. We're supposed to vote. We're supposed to care. We're supposed to persuade people. We're supposed to fight for what we believe in. I have a picture of someone here in a voting booth. That's an important part of our responsibility as Americans is to vote, is to care, right? So we're supposed to care. We're supposed to get worked up about these things. But as people of faith, we have to always temper that with our faith that that God's going to work, right? Like, I'm going to get worked up about it. I'm going to try to vote the best I can. I'm going to try to press for the healthiest community I can press for with whatever influence I have. But I ultimately have to leave the results up to God. That God is going to bring his kingdom to bear on earth in his timing. It's not always my timing. And so I'm going to have to trust that his love is sovereign over history. So I would say, yes, vote. When I say trust that God's love is sovereign over history and he can work through bad leaders and good leaders, that doesn't mean we just sit on our hands and don't do anything, right? We should vote. As, as Americans, we have a vested interest. We should care. I'd say just a couple of pieces of advice with, with voting. We're in an election season right now. Read the Constitution, right? If you're going to vote, read the Constitution because that's the rules of the game. And read your Bible so you know how to vote in a biblical way with biblical values. So so be a student of that responsibility that you have. But then ultimately, come back to your prayer closet as well and trust that God's love for you is sovereign over history. That God will love you no matter who is leading, no matter who is in charge. That's the way God works, and we see that example here in this story. So I'd say a result of us trusting that God's love is sovereign over history is that we, we take our responsibility in history but we also trust God and trust in that love, and that makes us a praying people. If you really believe that God is sovereign, you don't go passive and, and give up and back away from life, but you dive in and you ask God to bring his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. You, you pray. 
Um, so a real practical example of this is in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, don't be anxious, but pray. And the grammar of that is pretty clear. It means don't stay anxious, right? So those of you with a tender conscience, it doesn't mean like if you've ever been anxious, that's it, you're in trouble, you're going to hell. It, it means if you start to be anxious, take that and pray. Don't remain in your anxiousness, but pray. So, so if you're having anxiety about your, your job falling apart, recognize that and, and pray. Talk to God who is sovereign over history and over circumstances. If you're having anxiety about your body falling apart, sickness, disease, recognize that anxiety and don't stay there, but, but pray. Talk to the God of the universe who loves you, who proved that he loved you through Jesus. If you're having anxiety over broken relationships around you, recognize that anxiety and take that to him in prayer. So I think that's how we act out the reality that God's love for us is sovereign over history. The next thing that we see in this text is that God's love is pre-promised, something that came way before us, right? Before we existed, God was loving us. He was planning this love for us. He was promising that a Savior was going to come to crush the evil of the serpent in the world. Look at verse 4 and 5 and 6. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David. So just one little minor thing that might confuse you if you're reading your Bible. It always says people go up uh, when they're going towards Jerusalem. So Bethlehem, the city of David, was a suburb of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is called also the city of Zion. So geographically, it's, it's up on a mountaintop or a plateau, so it's in a higher elevation. Um, so this was confusing to me when I start, first started reading the Bible because, you know, you might see on a map that, that Galilee and Nazareth are north, and we say going down for south, right? Because that's just how we draw our maps. But they're saying he's going up, um, not the way we would use it with north and south, but they're literally going up higher in elevation. So that's just a, a weird little side note. He also says that he's of the family and lineage of David, the house of David, the lineage of, lineage of David. So this is, again, pointing to Jesus being part of the prophecies that David would someday have a son. We see these prophecies or promises in 2 Samuel 7 where um, he's promised to have a house or an empire or descendants that would reign and rule forever. So there are these Old Testament promises that a Messiah would come from the line of King David. He'd be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. So we see these prophecies being fulfilled. So in ancient prophecy, we see the promise that God's going to love us by conquering evil and sending a Savior. So here in the Roman Empire, Caesar, Augustus, is saying, I'm the Savior, I'm the Lord. And Luke is saying the real Savior, the real Lord, was coming through these decrees of Caesar that are now fulfilling the promises, the ancient pre-promises of love that God had made in the Old Testament. How many of you, um, and you might be embarrassed to admit this, so I'll just say for myself, I find the Old Testament harder to read than the New Testament. That, you could, you could nod. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but yeah, I think a lot of people do. I think there's more cultural distance. I mean, there's cultural distance between us and the New Testament, but then it's like there's even more between us and the Old Testament. There's more difficulty, more cultural distance to travel. Um, so for a lot of us, we read the Old Testament, it just seems, it just seems weird. It just seems foreign. It's kind of this old, ancient book. It's harder to understand, and, and I would say I can connect to that as well. That's part of the, the thing that's driven me to want to study the Bible more is to just try to make more sense of it, try to understand it better at times when I don't understand it. I have a 
picture here of some ancient Old Testament manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scroll collection. If you haven't heard of that, it's just this collection of scrolls that they found in the Dead Sea that has helped us to corroborate a lot of the, the manuscripts that we have, the Old Testament. So this is written in Hebrew, um, which again, it's probably, probably hard for you to understand. Probably not many of you can read it. Um, there was a time that I could read Hebrew, like the week I was being tested on it, but then I don't think I've been able to read it since then. Um, it's a very difficult language, and, and that's just, I guess, just an example of the distance, the difficulty there. It can seem like a very distant book, and so I, I want to give you this application point that we can see that God's love for us was promised in the Old Testament, and, and this gives you a, a way to read the Old Testament, a way to make sense of it. Now, is this kind of maybe a self-centered way to read the Old Testament? Maybe so, um, but I think you'll get over it quickly if you, if you read the Old Testament enough, right? So, I think when we read the Old Testament, we can see a God who's always been pursuing a people in love. And this becomes a mega theme of the whole Old Testament. It kind of ties everything together. We see a people who are constantly rebelling, right? Just start with Adam in the garden. We see Adam saying, God, I don't want to obey you. I want to take the blessings apart from a relationship with you. And then he's plunged into death and disaster and shame, and then he hides. And God comes into the garden. He says, Adam where are you? Adam, where are you? You think God didn't know where Adam was? It's just one little picture of God and his pursuing love for us. And you can follow that theme throughout the whole Old Testament. This is a God who's constantly promising and delivering and promising and delivering his love for his people. So I just encourage you to see this as a theme. One of the um, things that we note in our little Advent devotional is the Jesus Storybook Bible and if you're a new Bible student, get a, get a good children's Bible. They, they help you to put together those themes. Um, if you're embarrassed about it, just say, hey, I'm buying this to read to my cousin or my nephew or something, right? They're helpful. Two that are really helpful are the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones and then the Big Picture Story Bible uh, by David Helm. Both of those do a good job of just threading that together, helping you just follow that narrative of seeing that the Old Testament is about a God who promised and prophesied his love for us, and that's now coming to fruition in Jesus. So Jesus comes with Mary. He comes to the house or to the town of David because he's of the line of David. All, all these things coming together that are fulfilling the Old Testament. So the Old Testament's not just an old, weird book that's hard to understand. It might be that, but, but in that weirdness and in that oldness, there's a God who thousands of years before you were born was loving you. And I think that's really powerful because it helps us to recognize, you know what? My circumstances are up and down. I'm healthy one week, I'm sick the next. I got money in the bank one week, I got no money the next, right? I got a good job this month, I got a bad job the next. Whatever your circumstances may be, it's easy to feel like God's love for you is tied to those circumstances. Remember that God's love was happening thousands of years before you were even born. And it's going to keep happening years after you die, right? Like this is a global project he's involved in to love you and his people. So another way to say this is, is remember that Jesus coming was not his plan B, but this was God's plan all along, his plan for you. And we see it happening. We see it coming together here in the birth of Jesus. So trust in, trust in that pre-promised love. Don't Another way to say this is don't trust in your circumstances. Don't trust in your circumstances. Again, I'm not saying be passive. I'm not saying give up. I'm saying your circumstances are going to rise and fall. Trust in his pre-promised love for you no matter what the circumstances are. 
And this most clearly then portrayed in the end of this story of Luke, where Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, where he becomes the sacrificial lamb that, that takes away your sin, that gives you his righteousness so that the Father delights in you, sees you hidden in Christ and loves you, sees you as perfect in his sight because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. Trust in that pre-promised love that is coming true in Jesus. But the last thing that we see in this um, trajectory is that God's love is down to earth. His love is down to earth. It's, it's gritty. It's real. He meets us where we are. Um, verse 7 says, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So we see God moving into our neighborhood, so to speak. God moving into our rough circumstances. I don't know where you grew up or what your, the details of your circumstances are, but I, I know just as fellow human beings, we've all go, gone through hard stuff, right? We all have shame in our background. We all have rough edges. Um, and Jesus lived through that same kind of life. He came into a rough place at a rough time. He saw hard things. He was betrayed like you and I have been. And he did all that because of his love for us. So God's love was, is down to earth in Jesus. I want to kind of walk you through thinking about this again. As I said earlier, we can be desensitized to the Christmas story because we've seen so many kids' Christmas plays or whatever. Or, you know, we, we just forget about the, the beauty of this. It says, first of all, she gave birth to her firstborn son. Um, how many of you remember the, the elevated expectations you had if you have children with, with your firstborn, Right? With your firstborn child, there's just this weight. Um, there's just all this energy, just all this, like, I want to I do this right, you know? I don't, I don't want to do this the way things went wrong in my family. I want to do this right, and there's just this energy and this weight that goes into that. Um, it's hard for any kid to live up to, even in just little silly detailed ways, right? Like, you're probably more careful with the painting of the nursery with the first kid than you are with the second kid, you know, just little silly things like that. And yeah, they actually painted rooms back in these days. Um, they cared about things like that just like we do. So there's this heightened expectation. This was their firstborn child. I was a thirdborn, so I can kind of pick on this a little bit. You know, like firstborn, everything's done just right. Thirdborn, I was left at the nursery a few times. You know, it's just it's a different kind of attitude, you know. And then I have friends that have four, five, six kids. When you get to that number, it's just like, you know, the older kids can just raise the younger kids. and They'll just work it out, right? Um, she's... She's giving birth to her firstborn son. And in Middle East culture, it was even more of a heightened expectation. With a son, even more of heightened expectations and uh, desires for everything to be perfect and beautiful. And they're not even home, right? Like she's traveling. Ladies, how much, how would you enjoy traveling when you're about to give birth? And not in a car, you know? Like she's either walking or on a donkey or something. It's not, it's not a fun place to be. So she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough. It says there was no place for them in the inn. A lot of commentators think there was no place in the inn because Bethlehem was busy because of registrations that were happening with this decree. But other people think maybe she wasn't let in the inn because she looked like an unwed mother, right? So she was being ostracized. So there's difficulty that they're going through here. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, none of us would lay a firstborn son in a manger, would we? I mean, maybe a thirdborn, but not a firstborn son, right? I had a picture of a, of a feeding trough here, some goats eating some straw. Any of y'all keep animals? Any of you have goats or chickens? Or You know, I mean, it, they can be kind of dirty, right? I mean, it's just kind of a different 
level of hygiene that your animals have than you have. I think our, we have dogs. I think our dogs are very well taken care of. Um, but you know what? We wash our dishes every night. Every night we wash our dishes in our house. But my dog bowl, we don't really wash it that often, right? Just don't really worry about it. Figure the dogs will be okay. We wash it maybe every couple of months or something. If that often, I don't know. I can barely remember washing it. I promise we do take good care of the dog. But we wouldn't put a baby in the dog bowl, right? So that, that's the point. Um, so these are rough circumstances, very humble circumstances. The God of the universe, first of all, is humbling himself to be born as a man, as a person. Philippians 1 is a, is a great study of this. In Philippians 1 it says, Jesus didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped. And what that word means is something to be just clung to in a greedy way. He held it with open hands. Meaning he was willing to give that up and empty himself, it tells us in Philippians 1. So he gave himself up in a sense. He was willing to live within human limitations. Sadly, we're human and we're we're not willing to live with human limitations most of the time, right? We have a real hard time being content with our limitations. I've been reading a book lately called Imperfect Pastor, and I found this quote in the book it's by Zach Eswine, and he says, almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. I thought, oh, yeah, that just sounds so slow, and painful, you know? I don't want to have human limitations. I want to be able to solve every problem. Theologians call that being omnipotent, all-powerful. I want to be able to be everywhere. Theologians call that being omnipresent, or we call it Facebook. That's where we try, I guess, to be everywhere. And I want to be able to know everything. Theologians call that omniscience. But you know what? I don't know everything, and I can't solve every problem, and I can't be everywhere. That makes me mad. You know what? When I look at the life of Jesus, Jesus doesn't really seem that bothered by it. And so I'd encourage us to, the way Zach says it in his book, is we should apprentice ourselves to Jesus. You know, the way we call that sometimes is just discipleship, right? Why don't we follow Jesus around? See how he lived. See how he trusted the Father within his human limitations. He trusted that his Father was good, even though he couldn't be everywhere at once, even though he couldn't solve every problem all at once, even though he couldn't know everything all at once. He veiled all of that. He was God, but he became flesh. He lived within human limitations. And do we understand exactly how that worked? We don't. So feel free to ask me questions afterwards, and most of my answers will be, I'm not sure, right? But we know that God, as he says in Philippians 1, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, said, I'm I'm willing to give myself up and become a human and die and that's what we see taking place in the birth of Jesus. So God's love is down to earth. The application for us is that because God's love for us is down to earth and humble and comes into our brokenness, we should be willing to love other people that way. So that's my question for you. Do, you. do you love the people around you in that way? Or do you only love people on your terms? I know for me, I just want to love people on my terms. I want to love, I want to love people in a way that conforms to my agenda. And the God of the universe says, I will love you on your terms. I will enter into your neighborhood. I will enter into your limitations. And I will live the life that you should have lived perfectly and continue to show you love by dying in your place on a cross and conquering sin and death through the resurrection, giving you 
my perfect life. That's what Jesus did for us. So I think as we look at that, as, as we're blown away by that, then our reaction should be to say, okay, God, who's, who's around me? Who, whose life do I need to enter into in these same kind of humble, humble ways? How should I love others the way that you loved me? And I can't give you the details of how to do that, but I know the Holy Spirit can. And as you pray and you say, God, give me eyes to see that God's going to show you the people around you that you need to serve, you need to humble yourself to enter into their space and into their time and to love them, even with your human limitations, to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. And I'll pray for you because I know how frustrating that is. I want to wrap up by, again, just remembering that we see God's love for us in Jesus. And so we can look at the birth story and we can be encouraged that God loves us in these small, humble ways. He was born as a man. He came into our world. And I just want to recognize that this is a season when we have a choice to make on almost a daily basis. This season of life in American culture is a very busy time and we have constant choices before us to get overwhelmed by the busyness or to choose to see Jesus and his goodness and his love for us in all the little circumstances. Um, All Christians everywhere celebrate the incarnation. It's central to Christianity. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But what's interesting is all Christians everywhere don't agree on how to celebrate the incarnation, right? As Christians, we're really good at fighting over the how to do things area of the Christian life. But we all agree that Jesus is the point. As I said earlier, we want to deputize you and your families and say, okay, it's your job to figure out the traditions based on your tribe, your neighborhood, your background, your family that help you in a memorable way to celebrate Jesus this time of year. But don't forget that Jesus is the point. I think one of the reasons we get caught up in fighting about how we do things as Christians is because we slip into thinking that if I do these things the right way, God will be pleased with me. But the New Testament again and again says, you've already blown it. It's too late. God's not pleased with how you do things. But he is pleased with Jesus. And so we come before God, pleasing in his sight, by faith in Jesus, not by how we do things. And then the how we do things begins to grow and begins to change as we apprentice ourselves to Jesus, as we follow Jesus, and we try to live in the pattern of Jesus because God loved us first through Jesus. Let me pray for us, and we'll respond uh, in communion and song. God, we thank you that you loved us through Jesus, that you took our sin upon yourself, that you give us your perfect righteousness, that you love us, that you delight in us, that you're pleased with us. And so, Father, I pray that we wouldn't get caught in the trap of thinking that just the right tradition or just the right song or Just the right practice will make you love us more. Help us to recognize that you couldn't love us any more than you love us by giving us Jesus. God, help us to trust you and to obey you because of the love you've already shown us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.